Well, I'm gonna, I got a little prayer here just to transition from child dedication into opening the Word of God. So if you'll just bow your heads one more time and quiet your hearts. God, may our hearts break gently like soil softened by slow showers, completely held even as we crumble to be shaped anew in beauty with the cruciform picture of Jesus on the cross as our standard of true beauty. In your name we pray, amen. Well, I was reading through an old devotional, actually, and the author was citing a professor. He's still an author. He was in Chicago at, uh, I think, North Park for a long time. Scott McKnight. He said, when Scott McKnight taught New Testament as a professor in Chicago, every semester he gave his students a test with 24 questions asking what they thought Jesus was like. Later in the semester, he gave a second test with slightly different language, asking the students about their own views and their own personality. I don't know if you can see where this is going. After years of collecting the results and comparing the two tests, McKnight concluded that everyone thinks Jesus is just like themselves. He said, even though we like to think we are becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably, sadly, more often the case. We try to make Jesus like ourselves. Something we're aware of at Crossview, but we're passionately all about learning from Jesus, spending time with the living Christ and learning from him how to be like him because he is not only the revelation of who God is, but he also tells us what humanity can be, what humanity was meant to be. Now, the remaking of Jesus in our own image is made easier in our modern-day Babylon by some of the false gospels floating around. I'm going to introduce maybe new language for you as new language for me, but if you pause and think about it, it's not new in terms of your experience. And I'll get there by route of one of the false gospels that I think most people at Crossview are aware of. It's often called the prosperity gospel. It takes a variety of different forms, but maybe in its most basic form, the prosperity gospel in American consumerism today looks something like this. If I can do the right things, maybe say the right incantation in prayer, rub the genie lamp just the right way, then God will bless me with all kinds of material possession and wealth. In other words, if I can learn how to manipulate God, I can get everything that I want. And God never promises that, but it's very prevalent, even in some strands of American Christianity, the prosperity gospel. But a phrase I heard recently that I've been kind of mulling over and uh, connects deeply with where we're going to go with our text this morning is another false gospel that is floating around, and maybe more subtly, even in American churches. I'm going to label it this morning the emotional prosperity gospel. It's not the material prosperity gospel that we know so much about it. It's a little bit more subtle, and it usually tends to take the shape that uh, I always need to be happy if I'm a Christian. That Christians should just inherently be happier than everyone else around them. And then subsequently, that means you should have less pain 
and less sorrow. One author says this, the prevailing view within American consumerism, including the Christian variety, is that suffering is an anomaly to be avoided whenever possible or numbed by chemical or psychological distraction when avoidance fails. By denying the reality and normalcy of suffering, these false gospels offer no redemptive vision of pain. Instead, they burden those who suffer even further with the message that their suffering is the result of a weak faith. After all, if Christian faith exists to alleviate your pain and make you happy all the time, but your pain persists, then either Christianity is to blame or more, I think, dangerously, your faith is. There's something wrong with you. And oftentimes we learn this kind of innocently at the beginning of our Christian journey, and then it stunts our growth. (laughs) And we just get stuck. We plateau. We don't go deeper into the abundant life that Jesus has for us because we've We've bought into these false gospels that I should have the biggest house in the neighborhood because I'm following God or because I should be the happiest person around because I'm following God. And I'll say this as we begin, in Jesus we do, I promise you we do experience life more abundantly. But it doesn't mean abundantly more happy, (laughs) Because of Jesus, because our standard of beauty is Christ, arms stretched out in agony on a cross, bearing our sins and entering into death on our behalf. Because that is our standard of beauty, you and I can be honest about grief in a way that others are not able. I actually heard someone say this in I think it might be true. The happiest people in the world are not those who have no suffering, but those who are not afraid of suffering. And if Christ on the cross is our standard of beauty because it leads to the resurrection and the redemption and the restoration of all things, then we don't have to be afraid of suffering because we have a God who comforts and encourages and restores and makes new And that's part of the adventure of life. I'm going to pick up where Nolan left off. I was thrilled to come back and hear how great Mike did two weeks ago and how amazing Nolan is. I love hearing that. I love. You can tell me that every day. He did a great job. I'm going to pick up where he left off. We're in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. It's a huge section this morning, and I'll just tell you, this comes with my tension. When I teach through a book of the Bible, I don't want us to be in it forever but I also just hate skipping over parts of a book. So we're going to go rather quickly through the first part of this. Um, And really the main reason for it is because Paul, I think, as he's writing to the church in Corinth, is addressing an issue that he spent more time in in 1 Corinthians. And so to really get into what he's getting into in the second part of chapter 6 here, we'd have to go back to 1 Corinthians, which I did preach a few years ago. So go to our podcast if you're interested in that. But Paul's going to talk a little bit about what it means to be the people of God in the midst of Babylon, in the midst of idolatry. Uh, that you can read through what's going on in 1 Corinthians and some of their questions about eating meat, sacrifice to idols, and all this stuff. But he starts with a series of questions, and then he'll end with the one that I think is the primary thing he's driving at. Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. 
How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And here we go. What union can there be between God's temple and idols? And then out of that last question, he is going to quote a few passages in the Old Testament. And again, I think this is a part of an ongoing conversation he's had with them. For we are the temple of the living God, which is a glorious truth when you pause to think about that. And he he quotes, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's why we are a temple. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. If I would use language from our previous series, I would say God is saying, don't use the tools of Babylon to try to build my kingdom. <laughs> don't, to, don't use the, the, the tools of death and hatred that have been sanctioned by Babylon to push others down so you can elevate yourself. Don't do that. You can't partner with Babylon in those ways. You are set apart. You are different. The kingdom of God comes in an upside down, radically different way. And then, honestly, verse 18 is incredible because he's quoting from 2 Samuel 7. And Paul, is, 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 he kind of re- I, I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. It's an amazing promise, and Paul can't help himself. Because we have these promises, these amazing promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit, And let us work toward complete holiness because we fear God. That's what we were made for, to be like Jesus. Not to remake Jesus in our own image, but to be cleansed and to become like Jesus. And if you haven't been paying attention, how we're going to get there. I mean, there's there's lots of ways to get there. But what we're going to talk about this morning is the role of godly sorrow in bringing about this cleansing. Setting us apart, helping us be different, some, an alternative community. And Paul's going to talk about the difference as we keep reading between godly sorrow and ungodly sorrow. We'll get there. Verse 2. So again, now we're going to, and I'll try to remind you if you haven't been with us or if you're newer to 2 Corinthians, Paul has been dealing with a very, very difficult situation in Corinth. So I'll, I'll actually just say here. So Back in chapter 2, when we were earlier in our series, we were talking about what was going on, and we don't know everything, but what we do know is Paul made an unexpected visit to the church in Corinth, and in the midst of his visit, it didn't go well. And we really don't know exactly what happened, but in humility, what I presented to you was it seems like somebody from the inside of the church in Corinth challenged Paul publicly. And the church just stayed silent and watched this unfold, and Paul left. Now, Paul knows a couple things, and we'll get more into the outsiders as we get later into the letter. But Paul was challenged by insiders, and he's aware that there are also outsiders coming, bringing a different form of a false gospel, which we'll talk about later as we get into the letter And he's worried about the church, but he doesn't feel like it's good for him personally to come back to the church. So he writes what we'll see in a few verses, a severe letter to the church. And how would you like to be Titus? He sends Titus. Hey, I'm not going. You take this letter. And you read this letter to the church. 
And Paul, so Titus, as, as he's writing 2 Corinthians, Titus has already returned. We'll see that in just a few verses. But what, what, what we've been invited into up to this point in the letter is Paul's tension. I mean, you can go back and read chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul literally says, God opened a door for the gospel and I, I ignored it because I hadn't heard from Titus. I mean, you tell me if this sounds like an emotional prosperity gospel. I was so concerned about what was going on in Corinth, I couldn't even go forward and do ministry that was open. So there's a lot of emotion for Paul wrapped up into this. That's why throughout the letter, you find these personal pleas of Paul trying to to let them know how much he cares and how much he now knows that they care. Verse 2, please open your hearts to us. We've not done wrong to anyone, nor led anyone astray, nor taken advantage of anyone. I'm not saying this to condemn you. I, I said before that you are in our hearts and we live or die together with you. And I have the highest confidence in you. I, I take great pride in you. You've greatly encouraged me and made me happy despite all our troubles. We've had our troubles. It hasn't all been easy, but... I know you're going to do the right thing. I know this is going to work out. I got, I got faith. God is at work in you. We're, we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. I'm going to pick up then in verse 5 where we start to get to kind of Paul's retelling of the itinerary. as kind of how things unfolded in his mind. He says, when we arrived in Macedonia, there was no rest for us. So again, as we're talking about is the Christian life easy? Is it always happy? I mean, Paul is an incredible an apostle, an, an amazing man. And, and here's what he says. We faced conflict from every direction. There was no, does this sound like happiness? There was no rest for us. We faced conflict from every direction. Battles on the outside which again, we can only guess what was going on in Macedonia as he was writing this. I mean, we, we see several of his hardships as we read through the letter. Battles from the outside and fear on the inside. I mean, those are real emotions. <laughs> Paul is wrestling with, grappling with as he goes through this. But one of the things that Paul has learned as he has modeled his life after Jesus and and been in relationship with the living Christ, he has learned that no matter how hard things get, that death leads to resurrection in Christ and that God will meet him in the midst of any pain and sorrow and suffering and being, bring comfort. And this is how, verse 6, God, who encourages those who are discouraged. I mean, what a great line. Again, maybe a Bible verse for, for, for those of you who are discouraged in this season. God's not surprised that you're discouraged. You live in a broken world, but God will encourage you. That's what he does. Paul says, God who encourages those who are discouraged, he encouraged us this time by the arrival of Titus. Our friend came with good news. His presence was a joy. And so was the news that he brought of the encouragement he received from you. When he told us how much you longed to see me, how sorry you are for what happened, how loyal you are to me, I was filled with joy. It's what I needed. My soul was not at rest. I was dealing with conflict from the outside and all these fears on the inside. And then Titus came comfort. And then verse 8, here we're going to start to get into what will really kind of hone our, kind of our continuing conversation. 
Listen to what Paul says. He says, I'm not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you. I'm not sorry now. I was sorry at first because I knew it would be painful. He says, I know it was painful to you for a little while. Again, does that sound like an emotional prosperity gospel? I sent you a letter and I knew it would be painful. But then what does he say? Now I'm glad I sent it. I'm glad I sent it. Not because it hurt you. I'm not delighting in the pain that it caused. I don't celebrate the brokenness in this world. It's not because the pain it caused you, but because the pain caused you to repent, to return to God, to change your ways. I mean, a lot of times pain is one of the reasons we start to remake Jesus in our own image because we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to confront it. We don't want to be honest. So we start to recreate Jesus in another image so we don't have to deal with our pain or our brokenness. (laughs) Paul's like, no, no, that's not how it works. And I know it was hard for you to see what was really going on, but I'm glad it happened because you look more like Jesus now. And that's a great thing. And then, again, you tell me if this sounds like an emotional prosperity gospel. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. There is a kind of sorrow that God wants his people to have. And it shouldn't surprise you if you know the Jesus revealed to us in the New Testament Gospels because Jesus cries and Jesus weeps and Jesus has sorrow and he's the definition of what it means to be human. And so if there are things that are breaking Jesus' hearts, then we shouldn't be surprised that there are things that break our hearts too. kind of sorrow that God wants us to have And Paul says, you're not harmed by us in any way. This is good for you. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us, it leads us away from sin. It leads us away from death and it results in life, in healing. Paul says, in salvation. He says, there's no regret for that kind of sorrow. It's from God. But there is a worldly sorrow. It's different than godly sorrow And it lacks repentance. There's no change. You stay where you are dead. It results in more death. So we should anticipate sorrow. The question is, how will we respond to it? And Paul is here. He's just celebrating what happens when we allow God to bring comfort in the midst of our sorrow. When we allow ourselves to be honest with the brokenness, whether it's in the world around us, as Paul is experiencing, or within us as the Corinthians are experiencing. Paul says, just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Look at the fruit. There's earnestness. There's concern to clear yourselves. There's indignation, alarm, longing to see me, zeal, a readiness to punish wrong. If you remember chapter 2, the guy that challenged Paul, it seems like they kind of excommunicated him. And Paul's like, whoa, 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 I forgive him. Bring him back. I see by your actions that you're for me, but you went too far. Forgive him and bring him home. I've forgiven him. That's what Paul is saying. Uh, So he says that you showed me that you have done everything necessary to make things right. My purpose then was not to write about who did the wrong or who was wrong. That wasn't why I was writing. I wrote to you so that in the sight of God, you could see for yourselves how loyal you are to us, that we really do have a special relationship here. 
And we've been greatly encouraged by this, comforted, strengthened. And in addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how, how happy Titus was. I knew he didn't want to take the letter. He took the letter. It wasn't easy for him, but, but he was so encouraged. You welcomed him. You set his mind at ease. I had tried to tell him how much I love you, how proud of you I was, and you didn't disappoint me. I knew it. This is so Paul. Paul, if you read through his letters, is always like, church, you can grow. Church, you can grow. Be careful. Here's a warning. If you don't grow, I know you will. That's just how Paul writes. Be wary. I know what will happen if you don't grow, if you don't change, if you don't repent, if you don't turn. But I know you will. But I know you will. That's just how Paul writes. You proved me right again. And now Titus cares for more than ever, for you more than ever, when he remembers the way all of you obeyed him and welcomed him with such fear and deep respect. And I'm happy now because I have complete confidence in you. (laughs) There he is again. Complete confidence in you. Well, again, for the sake of this morning, what I want to hone in on is this idea of godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. And I've told this story before, um, but I just, for me, it's always easier to start with my own story when I start talking about the importance of lament for our discipleship journey. And even, you know, I talk about my own Jesus journey that started about eight years ago And that I'm more excited about Jesus, more in awe of Jesus than I've ever been. And one of the main reasons for that is I learned how to lament eight years ago. And it guided me on this journey. But it took me a while. I want to tell the story this way because it takes a while. We live in an immediate gratification world. And I know that many of you came in this morning hoping you would get one little nugget of truth that you could go and change your life tomorrow. But the journey of discipleship is this long, beautiful journey where over time God is planting seeds and slowly cultivating them to grow. And it takes time. My journey with lament probably really began about, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago. I was in a seminary class in our denominational seminary about an hour and a half north of here. And we were, it was a class on apologetics. So it's like a defense of the Christian faith. And we were in the section of the class where we were talking about the problem of evil. And why is there pain if God is good? And why do bad things happen to good people? All this stuff. And, you know, it can get very philosophical and very theoretical and very abstract. So our professor, Dr. Thomas McCall, one of my favorite profs, he wanted to make sure that we didn't lose sight if we were training to be pastors of the personal side of pain. And so he had us read this book. This is the book I read right here, Lament for a Son by Nicholas Wolterstorff. I've recommended it to some of you. Nicholas Wolterstorff was, is a, or what, I think he's retired now. He was a professor, actually Christian professor. He was at Yale Divinity School for a while, Yale. And his son was in a mountain climbing accident in his early 20s and died. So what, what ended up happening is Wolterstorff was working through his pain of losing his son, and he wrote out a journal or a diary, whatever you want to call it, just being honest and authentic about what he was feeling, his sorrow, but also trying to keep his eyes on Jesus and, and how does Jesus meet him in the midst of his pain. And I was reading this book. It was about 15 years after my dad had passed away. And if you ever go to the library at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, it's a pretty sterile library. It's not exciting. It's just a base library. And I'm doing this for homework. 
And I'm sitting there reading this book for homework in this very bland library all by myself. And tears are rolling down my face. I mean, as I'm I'm reading Wolterstorff lament the death of his son, I'm learning that I have yet to lament the loss of my dad. (laughs) Fifteen years later, I never knew how to lament the loss of my dad from cancer. And that was, that, was what, that, that was the beginning for me of like, there's more to sadness than I'm aware of. About nine years ago, one of the guys that was kind of maybe discipling me had given me a book and I, gave me a book. It was really helpful. And some of the language from the book is language that I use in our discipleship pathway formed. I had kind of plateaued in my discipleship journey. I, I had gone through a season of growth, I'd, being a pastor, but I was kind of feeling, this, I was feeling stale. And, I, and I, I, was, I remember praying, God, I want more of you. God, I want more of you. And the book started to give me some helpful language. And you guys have heard, you've heard me say this before, but I really do believe the discipleship journey begins by learning about Jesus. Because it's so easy for us to remake Jesus in our own image, you and I have to continually go back to the New Testament, continually sit with Jesus in prayer, encountering the living Christ to remind ourselves, to awaken ourselves that Jesus is so great. And we're so tempted to minimize him and simplify him, but he's just too great. Don't do it. He's incredible. But, but what I learned is that the more you learn about Jesus, It opens the door for you to begin to learn more about yourself. And that for me became a a launching point for the next season of my discipleship journey. The more you, I mean, and I will tell you this, I don't think I've ever had a higher theology of sin than learning about myself. But there's things I needed to know about Jesus that gave me the courage to get honest and humble about how broken I am. I I had a lot of brokenness in me. (laughs) And I had to learn to be honest about what the world has done to me because we live in a broken world and it's broken me more. But also what I've done, what I've done to myself, what I've done to my relationship with God, what I've done to others. It's hard to be that honest about how selfish and prideful and self-centered we can be. But here's what I'll tell you. If you are willing to go on that journey and be that humble and be that honest, what is going to happen is it's going to ignite for you a new season of learning how great Jesus is. Because all of the abstract theology you've learned about the love and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus now becomes real. (laughs) Because you're forced to be so honest about your own brokenness. And you know you need a Savior. And then you start to sit with Jesus and realize that he forgives you. That he sees you just the way you are. And he knows what you've done and he still loves you. And now 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 you're awakening When the Bible talks about how the mercy of God and the love of God is infinite, and it stretches his forgiveness as far as the east is from the west, now you don't just have words for it, you've experienced it yourself. And I really do, I think that's the discipleship journey. We learn about Jesus, it enables us to learn more about ourselves, which then allows us to learn more about Jesus, which is only going to enable you to learn more about yourself, and that's why you keep growing and becoming more and more like Jesus. 
So as we read through the text this morning and we think about worldly sorrow and godly sorrow, just in the whole gamut of what Paul is experiencing and and the way he's trying to lovingly challenge the Corinthian church, for the sake, maybe this is a little bit simplistic, but I, I think it's helpful for the sake of this morning. I want you to think about worldly sorrow as, as, as any of the sorrow in your life where you don't allow God to comfort and heal your pain. You avoid the pain. You pretend it's not there. You just transmit it to other people. You blame, you accuse, but you never, you never get honest and sit there with God and allow him to heal your pain. I think godly sorrow is allowing God to comfort and heal your pain. And change you. Cross you, I want you to hear this. God can redeem, comfort, and heal any pain. Any pain that you've inflicted on yourself or any pain that has been inflicted upon you by someone else in the name of evil. God can heal it. If you have the courage and patience to sit with him and meet him honestly there. And God can forgive any sin. I mean, if you're going to get really honest with yourself, you're going to find that there's things you just don't want to confess. God can forgive any sin. That's why this is our standard of beauty. That's how far Jesus goes. (laughs) There's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And I want to say this too. And it's kind of why I shared my story, even with dealing with the pain of my dad's death some 15 years before as I'm reading this book in seminary. I want you to hear this as well. God can heal any pain, past or present. Just because something happened to you 30 years ago doesn't mean it's outside of the reach of God's grace. I mean, it's true. And I've seen it happen. (laughs) I've experienced it, and I've seen it. This is our God. I'll keep going. Paul uses phrases like painful for a little while and sorrow God wants you to have. So I know you don't like hearing this, but I don't, I don't know how to not just be honest. Grief is an absolute unavoidable reality in a world that has fallen. And I've heard it said that pain is the price of admission to humanity. We inhabit a world of hurt Pain is an ever-present possibility. Many of you know that my oldest sister's daughter, about six months ago, was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, When the doctor told her she had cancer, that in and of itself is not good news. Nobody wants to hear the words, you have cancer, but it was really important that my niece and my sister heard it because their life changed immediately in their battle with cancer. And now my niece is cancer-free. I mean, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, you can clap for that. But it's important to name reality. Don't bury our heads in the sand or the ground like an ostrich. We talk a lot at Crossview about how being a mature Christian means holding things in tension. As Christians, we can hold the truth of the fall and the truth of redemption together. 
If we only hold the bad news, it becomes despair. If we only hold redemption, it becomes shallow and feels false. The church needs to be honest about the reality of suffering in the world so that we feel the tension of joy and sorrow. And I know for some of you, how does that, I don't even know how to explain to you that sorrow and joy can coexist. What I can promise you is if you are willing to engage your own sorrows in the same way that Paul said, I was battle on the outside and fear on the inside, but God encouraged me with the coming of Titus. God will encourage you. And when God encourages you and you know you are seen by your heavenly father, there will be this unimaginable joy that somehow in the mystery of God's working coexists with the sorrow that you carry. And we'll get there in a few minutes, but we're going to celebrate communion together. Communion is one of the clearest examples that for Christians, sorrow and joy can coexist because of what we're remembering at the Lord's table. The church needs to be honest about the reality of suffering in the world. Yes, we are made for a more enduring kingdom. You and I are not just made for consumption and comfort. We're not, we're not crazy for longing for things to be better. The, the, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And we are longing for God to eradicate evil and pain. And, and when Christ returns, the Bible tells us it's gone. <laughs> That's why we want him back. We love him. And you feel the tension because you were made. That's what Paul was saying earlier. You're made for wholeness, for holiness. You were made for completeness and joy. So when we are in our pain and the grace of God comes to us, it doesn't eradicate the pain and immediately take it away, but by a faithful process, the grace of God comes to our pain and then transforms our pain into a kind of grace. You have, to be, you have to move past trying to avoid your pain. You can't. You can't go around it. You have to go through it. If you try to go around it, it's just going to stay parallel with you. I mean, you, you got to go through it. And it but, but as you try to avoid it, what you're going to end up doing is just transmitting it to other people. Or you can allow the grace of God, grace upon grace, to transform that pain into a kind of grace of its own. We have our pain and the grace of God takes the pain as the raw material and turns it into a kind of grace so that what's the outworking? We become a gracious people. We become healers of others who are in pain themselves. The pain in our life has been transformed into a grace that is able to help and heal others. And we become, if you will, wounded healers. Again, it's not automatic. It's an art we have to learn. It's part of the journey of discipleship of taking up your cross and following Jesus. Godly sorrow. Lament. Another way of saying this is as followers of Jesus, part of our vocation is to be people of prayer in the place where the world is in pain. People of prayer in the place where the world is in pain. And if you and I buy into an, an emotional prosperity gospel, we will fail to live out our calling because we will keep pretending like pain has no place in our life. It's a lie. 
It doesn't map with our standard of beauty. Now, I was encouraged this week. I got back, and I'm not kidding. I heard, because I was already thinking about this, just talking with people and listening to stories they were telling, I heard at least five people from our church family tell me a story about how God invited them into the pain of someone else and what God was doing because they weren't afraid to enter into someone else's pain. Actually, I was even sharing this with our elders yesterday morning. We were praying together, and I was sharing some of the things I was encouraged about since I had got back from vacation, and these stories were at the forefront of what was encouraging me. And one of our elders said, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, like a fire. Are you going to run away from a fire, or are you equipped like a firefighter to run into the fire? And I thought it was a pretty good metaphor to think about because, I, I mean, again, if I see a fire, it's probably wise if I run away from it. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> but a firefighter is equipped and trained to run into the fire. I really do believe part of our task, Crossview, for one another, part of my calling as a shepherd of the church, is to equip us to enter into our own pain be healed by Jesus so that we can then enter into the pain of others. I try to do this by introducing vocabulary. You have no idea how important it is for you to be able to name your pain and name your grief. That's step one in many ways. I try to give permission for you to be sorrowful, for you to be honest about the pain you're experiencing We want to be a church in our community that creates space for humility to be honest in our own confessions, to be vulnerable about the things that we've done that we're not proud of, that we need to confess before one another so that we can be forgiven and renewed and move forward in new life. I also want us to be a church that goes together. I don't want you to go through this alone. There are people, our pastoral staff is maybe the easiest to reach out to, but there's so many people in this church who would love to walk with you into your own pain or into the pain of those around you. Why do you think we even have a deep soul care team? (laughs) Because we want to be honest about the pain that is real from living in a broken world. And I'll just kind of wrap this up. I'm going to revisit language that I used years ago, but I was having lunch with one of you and you brought it back to mind. And I was like, I like that language. I got to bring that language back. But, but what I'm trying to tell you, what Paul is fully aware of and not ashamed to say, there is pain and there is pressure and there is disappointment when you live a human life in a broken world. And the reality is all this pain and pressure and disappointment, it, it puts stress on you and it will break you. You will be broken. You can be broken in a way that leads to repentance and life and salvation. Or you can be broken, and it's not hard to learn the ways. Just pay attention to modern-day Babylon. There's plenty of ways for you to be broken in ways that lead to death. I, even though I told Kami this over vacation, I, just, I was looking, and there was, whenever I see something like eight, eight ways to a healthy life, ten ways, I always like, what, what, how, how is science talking about a healthy life <laughs> And I told Kami this list was so sad. The number one thing on the list was exercise. 
Which, well, I mean, that's not, but the number two thing on the list, don't get addicted to opioids. I mean, it's, it's funny, but it's sad. Like, where are we at in history that the number two thing on the list is don't get addicted to a pill that will take your pain away? I mean, what an indictment on modern day Babylon. I mean, there's plenty of ways to learn how to break bad. Don't do it. Break good. Jesus is the model of what it looks like to be betrayed, to be crucified and break good and break forth with new life, to spring forth with resurrection life. The only evidence that light outshines darkness is the resurrection. The only real hope we have is that Jesus will come and make all things right. What determines the goodness or trustworthiness of God is not our circumstances, but the person of Jesus. And you trust God by looking to Jesus. You could say it this way. God didn't solve and take away human vulnerability. What he chose to do was enter into human vulnerability in the person of Christ. And he continues to enter into our vulnerability. Or you could even say it this way throughout the mystery of the Trinity. God didn't even stop bad things from happening to God. (laughs) I mean, that's what the cross tells us. So let's then transition into this sacred moment of the church where we hold sorrow and joy together. Our central practice in worship allows us as Christians to fully embrace the complexities of joy and grief together. The communion meal is in many ways a meal of sorrow. It reminds us of the crucifixion. It's a broken body and blood of an innocent man. The scriptural words that introduce the Eucharistic liturgy begin on the night that Jesus was betrayed. We start the meal with a reminder of our Lord getting stabbed in the back by one of his best friends. And yet... And yet the word Eucharist, which is the historic term for the Lord's Supper or communion, means thanksgiving. It's the thanksgiving supper of the people of God rejoicing in our salvation and redemption through Christ. Each Sunday when we take this meal, we hold together sorrow and joy, gratitude and lament. Our Christian worship invites us to wade into this complexity and let it be, belittling neither the brokenness nor the beauty in our lives, because that's where we encounter Jesus, who is as inseparable from our worship as gratitude and sorrow as bread and wine.